Hello, it's Sam, coming to you from rainy Portland, Oregon. Relatively Prime could not have been made if 340 incredible people had not backed it on Kickstarter. In particular for this episode, I'd like to thank Paul Wright, Jackie Gast, Jacob Friedman, Jacob Haller, and Benjamin R. Harrison, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Murphy and Edmund Harris. If you also want to be incredible, then please rate and review the show on iTunes. There's a lot of you listening and only 39 ratings. Let's try to get it to 50 by the next episode. That would make a huge difference in helping new people find the show. And for those of you who are looking to do even more than rating and reviewing the show on iTunes, I ask you to tell a friend about the show. Or even better, grab your friend's phone, go to their podcast app, and subscribe them. In the end, they will not only forgive you for taking their phone out of their hands, they will thank you for turning them onto the show. And before we get to the stories this week, I want to tell you about Exitext posters. From across the room, these posters look like the Greek letter Pi or a portrait of William Shakespeare, but when you get close, you realize it's so much more. Like nearly six million digits of Pi, or all of Shakespeare's plays and poems all in an 18 by 24 inch frame. These are truly beautiful works of typographic art. And plus, they're a huge space saver. Have you seen a complete collected works of Shakespeare? It's not small. You can find more at exatexposters.com. That's E-X-A-T-E-X-T posters.com. And now, for the new episode of Relatively Prime, Mathematistan. Respect to, to John Adams, and I jumped to his son, because in a letter to an official at Harvard sent a word that his son was pretty well-versed with mathematics. Uh, he studied algebra. Uh, there are certain textbooks. I think it was uh, Fenning's Algebra. And uh, he studied geometry. And a lot of these studies were, were under the tutelage of his father, John Adams. Uh, which I found very interesting. And that tells us more about John Adams than what John Adams tells us about math anyhow. This is Relatively Prime, politics in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. On this episode, we're going to talk about mathematics and politics. And I was thinking, why don't we just start by looking at the backgrounds that some politicians have had in mathematics, in particular, the backgrounds that presidents of the United States of America have had in mathematics. I'll admit, this is a very specific area of knowledge. But hey, some people are very interested in very specific things. Like say, my guest. My name is uh, Ronald Merritt. I am an associate professor at Athens State University in Athens, Alabama. And after I got Ronald seated in a room and stuck a microphone in his face, I did that thing that interviewers do when they're sitting across from someone who has very specific knowledge. I asked a question about it. Okay, uh, so we, we can start this up. Uh, so uh, first, first things first, uh, why 
did you decide to uh, look at the mathematical education of the presidents of the United States? Um, so I wanted to I wanted to understand what the the education was uh, relative to mathematics in the 20th century and how that differed from those in the, the, the 19th century, if indeed it differed at all, and uh, what kinds of courses the presidents in their late teen years and early 20s decided to take. There are all kinds of historical biographies of these people, but when I attempted to contact archivists and and even biographers, math was not at the top of their list. Really? I'm, I'm so surprised. <laughs> and so Ronald had no choice. He had to dig into the mathematical education of U.S. presidents himself. And as we already heard, he found that for John Quincy Adams, his father, President John Adams, played a large role in his mathematical schooling. But the future sixth president's quality education came down to more than just his father. Like most early presidents, John Quincy Adams came from a wealthy family, and that allowed them to provide private tutors. And it was those things combined, the tutors and the father, which allowed the elder Adams to write a letter to Harvard bragging that his son's mathematical education went all the way up to differential calculus. But that's enough about Adams. Let's jump forward a couple of decades and talk about a much less recognizable name. James Knox Polk. Polk? was probably born in North Carolina, maybe just across the border in Tennessee, but definitely in the Appalachian Mountains. And after his first year of college, he transferred to the first public university in the United States, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He entered the sophomore class in, in 1815. The university had prerequisites like Latin, so Polk must have already had a solid classical education when he came in. But as he continued on, very little stands out in his educational record. Really though, this shouldn't be too surprising. As for most people, Polk is just not thought of as being that interesting. He was um, reported, at least by an author known by the name of uh, Nixon, to have uh, an uninteresting biography by other biographers. There's not much to say about James K. Polk as far as presidents are concerned, but as far as a mathematician and one who studies people who studies, studied mathematics, I find that uh, what I found in the actual written record uh, to be uh, quite fascinating. What the, the written record has said, and this came from the, the Office of Records, uh, it was reported that he graduated from the University of North Carolina with highest honors in mathematics and in the classics. And I thought, well, now classics, that's great. But how often do we see in the, the uh, record that a president graduated with honors in mathematics or having taken much mathematics at all? The answer, at least according to Ronald's research, is not often. Mathematics just doesn't seem to be the focus for people who are aiming to become president, which really isn't that surprising. When you look at past presidents, there's a lot of lawyers among the bunch, along with a few economics and business students. All of which really do sound much more like stepping stones to political office than a degree in mathematics. While Polk did graduate with honors in mathematics, it wasn't the high watermark for presidential mathematical achievements. No. That accolade, it belongs to someone else. Let me get the right number of that proposition. 
It's uh, proof number 224, uh, actually, in Elisha Loomis' uh, Pythagorean proposition. And it was also accepted into the Journal of New England Education. So somebody there thought it was novel, and it was printed. That's right. There's a president of the United States of America who had a proof of the Pythagorean theorem that Loomis included in his Pythagorean proposition book and that was printed in a journal. So hats off to you, James Garfield. That's pretty cool. Certainly his congressional colleagues thought it was rather novel and it was good to have an analytical thinker like uh, Garfield and Congress at, at the time. I think it was on the House Ways and Means Committee and trying to deal with the money. So that's a good place to have a, a person who knows a little bit about math in that day. And, and this day, it would also be good, too. That's a different story. Garfield's ability to do interesting mathematics didn't just come from nowhere. As with most people who do mathematical work, his education set the foundation. As a matter of fact, according to Ronald's research, Garfield holds the distinction of being the first president to take a rather specific class in college. By the end of his career, academic career at Williams, that he had calculus. And that is the first president that I was able to study where it was the case that in his, his uh, college level of study, he had the equivalent of a year of calculus or satisfied that year of calculus before he graduated. After talking so much about Polk and Garfield, I feel like we should shift to some more familiar presidents. So let's jump to the 20th century and talk about a couple of names that I think you've heard before. Okay, so so no math for FDR. None and none in college. That's not yeah. to say he didn't have a good background in geometry and in um, algebra, which was required to, to get into Harvard at his day. So what about Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon uh, moved into a new era of college-level mathematics. He was, I think, the one of the first presidents, if not the first, to take a class called college algebra. And it's at this point that Ronald found it became very hard to research presidential educations. Because now, now we have privacy laws. And in particular, there's one called FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which prevents people from just going in and looking at school records, which is a good law. But it did mean that Ronald's research had little choice but to turn towards course catalogs and degree requirements. This illuminated a bit for Presidents Reagan and Obama, but let's skip those because there's still one president who must have had some real mathematical grounding. Uh, and then, so what about uh, Jimmy Carter? Jimmy Carter went to uh, several colleges, uh, three of which for his undergraduate. He started out at Georgia Southwestern College, and I don't know why he left Georgia Southwestern College, but he ended up at the, at the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, and he stayed there a year and studied enough mathematics in order to gain entrance into the U.S. US Naval Military Academy. And he graduated from there in 1946. So he had to have enough math in order to get in there and certainly enough calculus. Now, this is just supposition on my part because he's still alive and FERPA protects him. He doesn't have to release these things, these transcripts. So 
I'm just making a conjecture on my part that in order to do graduate work in reactor technology and nuclear physics, he probably had to have at least through calculus too. So here is Jimmy Carter, James Garfield, taking calculus two uh, about 60 years apart. I really find this gazing into the mathematical background of presidents fascinating. Since I first talked to Ronald, I haven't stopped wondering if the amount of mathematics presidents may or may not know affects how they govern. I know I'm super prejudiced here, but I can't help but feel that an understanding of mathematics has to make you a better president. But then again, I also think it would make you a better proofreader, a better comedian, a better barista, a better executive, a better author. Really, I just think it'll make you a better anything. And instead of me just continuing to list all the jobs that could be done better with an understanding of mathematics, let's get to our next story, which is a complete course reversal from this one. Instead of talking about how mathematics has affected politics, we're instead gonna talk about how politics has affected mathematics. So my name is Della Dunbar. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Richmond. The place I think to start is Emil Artin, an Austrian mathematician. He was born in Vienna in 1898. In 1929, he married his former student, Natalia Jasny. When the Nazis and Hitler assume control in 1933, they're going to define what it means to be non-Aryan, and she's going to fall into that category. Just imagine this moment. In 1934, Emil Artin had to sign a document that declared that his wife was non-Aryan. In the mid-1930s, he began to have some restrictions put on his mathematical life by the German government. He wanted to travel to the International Congress, International Congress of Mathematics in 1936 in Oslo, but the government, German government prevented him from going. He was also invited to give a series of lectures at Stanford University. He was prevented from going. He doesn't publish for 10 years. So here he had been extremely prolific, solved a very important theorem, and then for 10 years he doesn't publish. So Solomon Lefschatz, who was president of the American Mathematical Society, went to the president of Notre Dame and asked him to make a position for Emile Artin on their faculty. The Artines, they had two children at the time they left Germany and came to America. This was just a one-year position. That single year turned out to be very important in the history of American mathematics. During that year, he gave a series of lectures on Galois theory. A booklet was produced from these lectures that became very important in the education of Americans in Galois theory. 173 miles south of Notre Dame is the University of Indiana, and they heard about Emile Artin being there and knew that he was on a temporary position. Their math department went to their dean and asked, hey, here's this really great guy, really unbelievable mathematician. Is there some way we could create a position for him? So they hired him in a permanent position, and he was there for seven years, and he goes to Princeton. While he was at Princeton, he was very productive and prolific. He moves through the ranks, and he becomes the fine chair of mathematics. It's only been held by Oswald Veblen and Solomon Lefschetz before Emile Artin. In 
in the mid-1950s, he decides to go back to Germany for one year as a sort of sabbatical. He ends up deciding that he would like to return to Germany. So he comes back to Princeton for one year, and then he goes back to Germany permanently. In America at this time, he's 60, 61. He's an older man being surpassed by younger mathematicians. In Germany, he's really considered a hero in many ways, very celebrated, so it's a very different type of situation. Okay, and so then, uh, how did the Boxer Rebellion affect American mathematics? So, the indemnity that America and subsequently other countries returned to China, the, it had the stipulation that the Chinese would come and study in America. The president of the University of Illinois argued to Theodore Roosevelt, our president, that to consider doing something like this because not only would it help the Chinese, but it would help our country. One of the early boxer scholars was Yang Kishun. He was a mathematician who went and studied with Leonard Dixon at the University of Chicago. At the time, Leonard Dixon was America's, one of America's strongest algebraists and number theorists. He had just turned his attention to studying a very famous, very old problem in number theory called Waring's problem. Yang Kishun is his first student who studies this, the first of many. But then Yang Kishun studies with him and goes back to China. Now he's back in China. Here's Hua Logang, who comes from a very rural area in China. He has no formal education, but he's come to the attention of Yang Kishun and Tsinghua University by way of an article he submitted on number theory. Number theory was and still is perhaps the only branch, but one of a few branches in mathematics that you can teach yourself. Yang Kishun um, suggested this problem to him, suggested he work on it. Instead of sending him to study with Dixon, he said, I really think G.H. Hardy's method is more interesting. So Hua Logang spent two years there at Cambridge. Just his time at Cambridge, I, I won't, won't exactly have the numbers right. He studied there for two years and I think published 10 papers, around 10 papers on Waring's problem, something like that. The University of Illinois created a very nice position for him in the 1940s. He came, stayed less than a year, and returned to China. What happens now is that Huao has gone back to China. He's a number theorist, a very pure mathematician. He's now at a mathematics institute. But he has his own political views, which stand in contrast to Mao's views. For him to survive, he's not going to be able to do number theory. He begins looking at applied mathematics and in particular looking at optimization problems for industry and was successful. So we as historians of mathematics have not studied this as much as I, I think it deserves. What happened to these other Chinese mathematicians? We know Hua Logang started doing applied mathematics, but what about the rest of them? And it's not like this is all in the past, and we've now figured out how to divorce politics from mathematics. Politics continues to impact the mathematical world just as it impacts the rest of the world, in all ways. One of the most obvious ways the two overlap, though, 
is in the realm of research, particularly with respect to things with possible defense or intelligence applications. And when I was going through my head, just trying to figure out who I should talk to about this, I remembered, I have this one person's number. I'm Keith Devlin. I'm the executive director of Stanford University's H-STAR Institute, that's Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research. And while his accent may imply otherwise, I called up Keith to talk about American politics. As, as people might be able to tell uh, from your accent, you were not born in the United States, but you are uh, currently an, a naturalized citizen of, of the United States of America. What does uh, being a citizen mean to you? Uh, I was actually delighted to be awarded American citizenship. Um, I, I, I proudly carry an American passport. I still carry a UK passport. I have dual citizenship. So it's not something I regarded as a formality. I actually felt very proud to have been given citizenship. I don't think that's something that one should take lightly. I follow I follow you on Twitter and, and things like that. And I honestly don't know any U.S. citizen that, that actually speaks as, as strongly and as proudly about the kind of founding principles of the United States as, as you have over the last few years. Yeah, I actually found, I mean, I find the, 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 the U.S., the original Constitution and the, the Bill of Rights, one of the most stirring human documents of all time. I mean, it's up there with the Magna Carta, on which it in many ways builds. So, I mean, that I've always found to be a very thrilling document. As someone who went through the process of deciding to become an American citizen, I'm dismayed when I find U.S. political leaders of, of, of both parties and of all levels, right up into the White House, who seem willingly to just trample and ignore those founding principles. I mean, either you're an American or you're not. And if you are an American, you should uphold the principles on which the country is founded. And I dismay that people who were, who were born into that and take advantage of that seem, seem willing to just ignore it. It really bothers me. Keith has been a citizen now for more than a decade and a half, which means that he was a citizen on one of the darkest days in US history. I hadn't long become an American citizen. And I, uh, you know, I mean, I was just outraged by, by that. You know, that the attack on uh, on uh, on the World Trade Center was 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 up there with Pearl Harbor. You know, it's just killing large numbers. Of, well, it's even worse in many ways because it was deliberately attacking not a military uh, fleet, but attacking but attacking a uh, a part of a, a city with with just ordinary people going. You know, it wasn't other than the Pentagon attack. The World Trade Center attack was just trying to kill people. And I just found that, that an outrage. Like a lot of other really smart people, after 9-11 happened, Keith was contacted by the government and asked to lend his expertise to try and stop another attack. In Keith's case, he was asked to pitch in on a project being run by a defense contractor called NIMDI, Novel Intelligence from Massive Data. Keith had never taken money directly from defense or intelligence contractors before. But in the case of NIMDI, he decided to say yes primarily because of that outrage that he felt at the 9-11 attacks. That doesn't mean that it was a simple decision, though. Having been a mathematician, working in mathematics all my career, I'm no longer able to sit on the fence. Not Saying no to that request was every bit as, as, as an action as saying yes. Uh, you know, I felt very much like the people that worked in atomic physics when it became time for the Manhattan Project and do you get involved in building nuclear weapons or not. And either way, I mean, the only way you can avoid having to face up and make a call at that point is by not having become, a, in their case, a physicist or, in my case, a mathematician. The moment I decided to go in mathematics, 
I had put myself on a track where I couldn't ultimately deny the fact that I was either culpable or responsible for what people did with mathematics. You either don't do mathematics or you eventually have to face up to the fact that you are doing something that's a very powerful, you're developing a powerful tool. And like most powerful tools, it can be used for good or for evil. And I couldn't just say, I will not be involved in this because that would have been every bit as positive a decision as to say, yes, I will be involved. And so for the first time in my career, I said, yes, I have to do this. And I did it on the basis of, a, of my own moral compass, which is that uh, there are things that I don't like and there are things that I can live with in some sense. But for me, the moral compass swayed dramatically with 9-11 because that was so beyond the pale. It wasn't, as I say, it wasn't collateral damage. It was deliberate murder. At that point, I said, I can help build tools with, with my career that can help prevent that, uh, maybe in the future. I would not feel comfortable saying no to that request because I would then be saying, I've built a tool that can be used for good or evil. I'm not going to use my ability to try to make sure that it's used for good rather than evil. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable, so at that point I joined the project. Now, that's a long answer because I, I can't give a short answer to this. It was something I spent quite a bit of time thinking about and I didn't come to the decision lightly, but I felt very comfortable with that decision ever since. All, all that being said, uh, what were your feelings when Snowden revealed uh, the NSA leaks a couple of years ago? Total outrage. Um, th there was a sort of a social pact. We were, uh, we, we were all trying to work f for the good of, of preserving American democracy as much as anything, or Western democracy. That was the goal, to preserve our freedoms. Well, you don't preserve your freedoms by turning what's supposed to be a beacon of democratic freedoms into an even larger version of the De German Democratic Republic. When, when it became clear that the NSA had assumed for itself essentially the role of, of the Stasi in, in East Germany, monitoring citizens, first of all, that was an outrage because it was completely against the American constitution. I mean, that was not what Americans supposed to about. Governments do not spy on people. And on the level of, uh, of, of everything I'd done on that project, you know, one of the things we discovered, and as I say, I didn't have security access, so I, didn't, I wasn't given access to uh, the tools that the government was developing, but all of the research I was involved in showed that it was an essentially impossible task to predict uh, a future terrorist attack based on the, on the large data sets. The trouble of the large data sets is they are large, which means you've got a denominator uh, where you're going to show up too many false positives, no matter what test you apply. So... Applying powerful techniques, you know, and I was I played a small role in helping to develop some of those techniques. Applying those techniques to the whole population not only is a, is, is absolutely wrong from the point of view of, of the American Constitution. It's procedurally crazy because it weakens our ability to uh, to prevent future terrorist attacks. With that said. I really wondered how Keith would deal with the government calling him up tomorrow and asking for his help on another project. What would go into that decision? I think we have to have a very clear agreement articulated with the NSA or the CIA, whoever it is, that um, the work we do will not be used to subvert the American Constitution. I don't want to be complicit. I don't want to be complicit 
in, in surveilling American citizens. I just don't want anything I do to be involved in that. If the deal was get involved in another project, but we will be absolutely explicit, this is subject to genuine congressional oversight, that elected government officials will be able to have access to what's going on, will know what's going on, the committees will have access, any use of these tools will have to go through the appropriate court approval process of a public court. If all of that was back in the open, as it should be in, in an American society, in, in a democracy in general, if all of that's in the open, then I would be certainly willing to, to get involved again. But I do not want to get involved and won't get involved if there's a, if there's a real suspicion on my part that this work will just be used to, to do the, the, the old bad stuff. That's not the game I wanted to get into. It's not the game I want to be proud of. You know, as I say, I am a proud American citizen, but I did so in part because I value the ideals and I don't want to be taken for a ride by people who take what I do and use them to subvert the principles of American democracy. Yes, those are very strong words. But if there's anyone that we should listen to about this, I wager it should be Keith. Not only does he have experience helping the government create these intelligence gathering tools, it just so happens that he also knows what it's like to be on the other side of a pair of government issue binoculars. So uh, I was wondering, have you ever personally been surveilled before? Well, I don't have hard evidence that I was surveilled, but I have extremely compelling circumstantial evidence. This was Back in the early 1970s, I was living in, in Germany. Germany at that stage was, was a divided country, east and west still. Uh, I had a position at the University of Bonn. And not only was Germany divided, but there was a lot of unrest. Uh, there was a lot of student unrest. Um, there was also a lot of terrorism. There was a thing called the Bader Meinhof Gang, uh, the Red Army Faction. And this was quite violent terrorism with sort of murders of, of bankers and police and so forth. And, and Bonn at the time was like it was the capital at the time. And uh, as the capital city, it was essentially like an armed city. There were sort of uh, patrol vehicles all over the place, sort of militaristic vehicles, armed police everywhere. It was, it was patrolled by the police. But they were everywhere. And so you were clearly in, in, in this armed city, a lot of tension there. Uh, as a professor, an assistant professor at the University of Bonn, I had many diploma students. They're sort of graduate students, uh, doing master's level, PhD level students, had several of them. And uh, many of them, I suspect, were involved in the student protest movements. Uh, I don't think they were terrorists, but they were certainly involved in the, in the movements. And they told me absolutely that they were being surveilled and followed and uh, their phones were being tapped and so forth. And they said it might well affect me because I was meeting with them regularly. I was their professor. So I shouldn't be too surprised if I, if I get, in, get pulled aside one time and interviewed. So I was alerted to this and I, I was a young, naive person. I just treated it almost as a joke. But then after a while, I started getting, people would say that you know, letters that were sent to them or letters that I received had quite clearly been opened in a very ham-fisted way. They hadn't been sophisticatedly opened. They'd been opened and then resaled, and then there was some sort of stamp on them saying, uh, you know, damaged in transit. But this began to be more than, an, more than coincidences. And in the evenings, I would... Well, I'd get this sense when I was coming home, I was bicycle home from the Institute, that I was being followed. And then at some point, we started looking out of the window. And it was like that scene in Casablanca where you look out and there's someone standing on the corner in a sort of a trench coat and a trilby hat sort of thing. So I thought, I've actually been followed. Now, of course, it could have been somebody else in the building, but, it, but I was a distinct feeling it was me. The whole thing was so ham-fisted. Either I was such a low risk that they put a trainee on to, to follow me, 
or they were just trying to scare me. You know, they said, let's just make sure this guy just doesn't do anything. So we treated it as a joke. But looking back, you know, this was, I was, I'm upset, I'm, I'm, I'm certain, in fact, that I was being followed and surveilled. Uh, you know, it was before the internet, so there was no trawling of internet data. Uh, it was old style uh, Cold War training. As I say, I treated it as a joke, but, you know, later on, when we sort of get to the, the Snowden era, and looking back, I thought, yeah, you know, the reality is, Totally innocent people, and I, I would like to say I was totally innocent. All I was doing was advising students in mathematics of all subjects, mathematical logic, pure mathematics. So that was my only connection with that word, was advising students, which is what professors are supposed to do. But, it, you know, looking back from the post-Snowden era, it became clear that it's extremely easy for any one of us to fall into the network of potential suspects and get sucked in. And, and, and when I think about it, if they'd continued to follow, I'm sure they could have found a whole bunch of things that when you put them together, looks very suspicious. So I'm actually very sympathetic now to people who say that they've been essentially framed, perhaps not intentionally, but when, especially now we've got computers that search databases to the extent we do, it will be very easy to find bits of evidence that when you put them together, can make someone look totally guilty. And looking back, I could imagine of how it could have been made. You know, I used to drive to Berlin to visit colleagues there, but Berlin was through East Germany. I would occasionally go into East Germany as a, as a tourist and wander around. You know, you start putting all of that together. Here's a guy with students who are doing this. He's, 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 he's traveling to Berlin. He's going into East Germany. And, you know, looking back, I think, wow, I mean, it, it would be so easy when you can gather lots of data and start connecting dots, even though the dots don't really connect to create a profile. And for all I know, I still have a file in Germany with a, with a question mark against it saying that I'm a suspicious person because they've got all this information. Well, uh, Devon, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. I hope I'm still a free man after this goes out on the web. Well, I, I hope so too, because <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm the cause of that, I'll be very sad. <laughs> me too. I have to say, on one hand, I really do hope that the government doesn't come for Keith. But on the other, it would be a sign that this show has real power. So, well, come what may. We have one story left, and after some of the heavier stuff that's been on this episode, I really wish that I could tell you that what I have left is heartwarming and soul-lifting. But sadly, I can't do that. I can guarantee that it's a lot more mathy, if that helps. But that being said, we are going to have to start with a political definition. So gerrymandering is drawing the district boundaries in order to diminish the power of your opponent. So there's different techniques such as splitting and packing. So splitting would be to take your opponent's voters and split them among different districts so, they, so that they have less voting power, versus packing is packing them into one or just a few districts. That way, they win in those districts, but then they have less power in the other districts. That was Christy Vaughn. When I spoke with her, she was an undergraduate at Duke. And now, she's a graduate student at Princeton studying applied and computational mathematics. And as she made pretty clear in that clip, we're now going to talk gerrymandering. To give us a sense of just how dangerous gerrymandering can be, here's the chair of the math department, at Grand Valley State University. I'm Jonathan Hodge. I'm the chair of the mathematics department at Grand Valley State University. And when I asked Jonathan about the dangers of gerrymandering, this is the example he gave me. 
Quick warning here for those of you who are sensitive to political engineering. I personally find this frightening as hell. We can imagine an example where we've got, say, four districts. And let's say we have 100 voters. And let's say there's 60 Democrats, 40 Republicans. Depending on how I draw those districts, I can make the 40 Republicans win three of the four districts. Uh, they've got to have a 13-12 win in those three districts, and then they lose by a landslide 24 to 1 in the remaining district. Or if I just allocate the Democrats and Republicans evenly, or I draw the districts in a way that that allocates the, the two parties evenly, the Republicans wouldn't win a single district. You really can manipulate the outcome of an election by the way these districts are drawn. One of the ways that you do this sort of manipulation, as Christy mentioned earlier, is with a method that's called packing. There's one in North Carolina that's actually currently the uh, subject of a, law, of a lawsuit. That was Jonathan Hodge's colleague at Grand Valley State, mathematics professor David Austin. It's extremely skinny. Uh, it, it's maybe 120 miles long. Uh, it's very narrow everywhere, but in some places it's extremely narrow, like less less than a mile wide in a couple of places. And if you look at it, the the boundaries are just drawn and it's just drawn in a crazy sort of way. And it's it's clear that some that that's probably an uh, an instance of packing where the district's drawn in such a way that everyone in there has a similar comes from a similar background or is inclined to favor one political party and it's just saying, okay, you can have that district, we'll take the rest. <laughs> And the other main method, it's called cracking. This happened in Columbus, um, I believe in the 2000, when the uh, con congressional districts were drawn. The, the, you know, right in downtown Columbus, three con congressional districts essentially looked like a pie. So that separates out those voters into three separate congressional districts and potentially uh, dilutes their influence in an election. We should probably take a step back here for a second and define some terms. As Christy mentioned, gerrymandering is the drawing of congressional districts for political gains. And actually, we should probably start first with defining congressional districts. A congressional district is a geographical area within a state where the residents vote together to elect a single person to the House of Representatives. And in 35 or so of the states, these districts are drawn by the state legislature, which means that every 10 years when the census comes out and the number of representatives across the states change, the party that's in power gets to draw the new congressional districts. And there's really not many federal regulations governing how these districts get drawn. The only real standard is that the population in each district in a state should be as equal as practical. There is also the Voting Rights Act, which blocks district lines which deny minority voters equal opportunity to, and this is a quote, practice in the political process and elect representatives of their choice. But the Voting Rights Act is quite regularly in the middle of judicial battles, and how it's been enforced has varied quite a lot over the years. To really illustrate just how little regulation there is, only 23 states even require that their congressional districts be connected. That said, almost all congressional districts have been drawn in a connected manner. You may have noticed, I keep saying this word, draw. And I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking in mathematical terms and the word draw comes up, my mind 
my mind goes to geometry. And though I love to think of myself as this totally unique being, I know deep down, I'm really not. So it's no huge surprise that geometry turns out to be one of the big tools which is used when investigating if a district has been gerrymandered. In particular, you could look at, at the geometric shape of a district and you could try to say, does this look like the district was engineered? And usually engineering would require a lot of choice or a lot of human involvement. Historically, there have been two geometric measures used to try and discern the amount of human involvement. The first looks at compactness. Compactness checks the ratio of the area versus the perimeter of a shape. An example of a highly compact shape would be a circle. It has a very high ratio of area to perimeter. For a shape with low compactness, think of a snowflake. There's a lot of perimeter, but not much internal area. So the ratio of area to perimeter would be really low. And so a district with low compactness that has a lot of perimeter, but not much area, it would, at least at first perusal, seem more likely to be an engineered shape. That is at least in part because one of the things that compactness checks for is how strange a shape is. Just by checking for districts with low compactness, we can find the shapes with strange-looking zigzagging boundaries. And while this alone does not indicate anything untoward, it is a starting point. The other starting point is checking a district's convexity. A shape is convex if you can draw a straight line between any two points in that shape, and the line never leaves the shape. So a circle, a circle is convex, but a circle with a pie piece taken out? Think Pac-Man here. That is not convex. Since if you draw a straight line from Pac-Man's eye to, say, the bottom of his mouth, that line would have to go outside of Pac-Man. There's a lot of different tests which use these two ideas, compactness and convexity, to try and determine the likelihood that a district has been gerrymandered. Jonathan Hodge helped develop one called the convexity coefficient. So what the convexity coefficient measures is the probability that between two randomly selected points in the district, you will stay within the district if you draw a line between those two points. It turns out convexity is not one of the easiest things to measure. But with some help from computer simulations, Jonathan and his colleagues computed convexity coefficients for districts across the United States. What did you uh, find a higher coefficient versus lower coefficient? What, is, what did the uh, actual simulation show? Well, Wyoming's pretty high because <laughs> it's a rectangle with one congressional district. So that, that would do. <laughs> yeah, Wyoming has a convexity coefficient of one. Um, on the other hand, if you look at average convexity coefficients in places like Maryland, you get fairly low coefficients. A lot of that, though, is due to the fact that the boundary of the state itself is uh, very non-convex. That brings up an interesting point. Some states, especially those near the East Coast, have very strange borders like West Virginia or exceedingly odd coastlines like Maryland. And these odd state boundaries can definitely bias compactness and convexity tests. And for people looking at gerrymandering, it turns out that they have to worry about more than just state boundaries. The population distributions in a state could also throw a spanner in the works. If I tweak the boundary of a district in a very 
low populated area, that's not going to have really much effect on the outcome of an election. On the other hand, if I make a small tweak in a highly populated district, that could make a big uh, impact. Jonathan and his colleagues were quite aware of these problems while they were working on the convexity coefficient. And after accounting for them, Maryland did actually start to look better. But not all states fared so well. Other states, like North Carolina, things actually get worse if you adjust for the population and the boundary. That, that uh, ignoring the state boundary and ignoring population, you actually get a better co uh, convexity coefficient, which suggests that the lack of convexity within the congressional districts in North Carolina, for example, is not just due to irregularities in the state boundary or the way the population happens to be distributed. It, it suggests that there's evidence of gerrymandering going on. Keep North Carolina and this potential evidence of gerrymandering in your head. We're going to be coming back to it. But before we do, let's talk about another gerrymandering test, this time with David. Once again, this test takes into account state boundaries and population distributions. But I will say it has a way more fun name than convexity coefficient. So what you do in this case is you choose two random people in the con congressional district, and you look at the length of two paths joining them. So the first path is that you look at is the shortest path between them that does not leave the district. The second path is the shortest path between them that does not leave the state. So you, you look at the ratio, and you take the average of those over all the people in the state. That average is called the bizarreness. Bizarreness was developed? Actually, just a second. I really want to soak in how great it is that a test for gerrymandering is called bizarreness. <sighs> okay, okay, I'm done. Bizarreness was developed by Chambers and Miller. And similarly to the convexity coefficient, the test found that that really odd-looking Maryland district, the highly non-convex and non-compact district, to not be very bizarre. It actually scored really close to 1, which is the least possible bizarreness score. So we have this district, which in isolation certainly looks gerrymandered to my eyes. But two different tests indicate that it probably wasn't. Should I take the test's word for it? If a test says that a district isn't gerrymandered, is that the last word? What if a test shows the opposite, that it's highly likely that a district is the result of gerrymandering? Is that proof enough? In terms of drawing some sort of objective standard, you know, you, you take any measure of shape compactness, you say, well, above a certain point, there's gerrymandering. Below a certain point, there's not. That's really not a good way of doing things because I, I, any sort of benchmark you set there is going to be arbitrary. I think these sorts of measures of shape compactness allow us to identify potentially gerrymandered districts. There's not a single measurement. These measures all have different qualities and emphasize different features of a district. So rather than looking at a single measure, probably the most appropriate thing to do is to look at a variety. Well, that wasn't very satisfying. At least they agree. I guess that's good. It's too bad that these geometric measures can't tell us for sure that a district has been gerrymandered. It is probably more believable than if they said they could, though. We all know the real world is not as cut and dry as the mathematical one. 
it does beg the question of what if we went beyond just geometry? Could our solution lie in that direction? Well, the answer, the answer is, oh, come on. You didn't really think I'd tell you the answer that easily. You know me better than that. Instead, I want you to remember back to when I told you to keep North Carolina and possible evidence of gerrymandering in your mind. Because we're going back to Christy Vaughn and her professor, Jonathan Mattingly, professor of mathematics at Duke University, and work that they did to try and determine if the districts used in North Carolina's 2012 election had been drawn fairly. Different than what a lot of people do, it wasn't about trying to come up with new districts or trying to uh, decide how compact or the properties. I and mean, we were really just trying to answer the question, how representative were the current districts? The fact that got it all started was that in 2012, in the uh, congressional elections, the majority of North Carolinians voted for a Democrat, but yet only four out of 13 were elected. As he said, they didn't focus on convexity. They didn't focus on compactness. They simply focused on how likely the 2012 election result was. This means their approach was very different from anything that we've talked about so far. Let's randomly choose new redistrictings and then rerun the 2012 elections exactly as they happened. That is to say, each voting precinct votes in the same way it did in the actual election. And all we change is which voting precincts are in which congressional district. And we would randomly draw these. And now, if I know you as well as I think that I do, you want to know what they found. Don't worry. I did too. No matter how you drew the district boundaries, we saw more Democrats elected under our randomly chosen district boundaries. So even though there were four elected back in 2012, our randomly chosen districtings had six, seven, or eight Democrats elected. With seven being the most likely. Uh, did you have any cases where you actually had four? Never. 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 That, that does show a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Just as before, this test is also not perfect. It requires the assumption that people are going to vote for the same party no matter which district they're in and which representative that means that they're voting for. But while they both stress that people vote for individuals, not for parties, Christy and Professor Vaughn also pointed out that in our increasingly polarized political climate, it's probably not that bad of a proxy. He in particular had a rather heartfelt and strong opinion as to what these results mean. We like to talk about the results of the election. And this really shows that, you know, that's, that's, not so, that's not so hard set, right? I mean, you took the exact same votes in the exact same precincts and just changed which congressional district the precincts were in. And all of a sudden, we get completely different results. While this result is super interesting, and they do think its implications are quite strong. It was so unlikely in our model that you would ever end up with four. That if you had a system that gave four, you have to assume that it was designed to do so. I, once again, couldn't get anyone to say that this proves for sure that the state has gerrymandered districts. We'd like it to be a warning bell, you know, some way of measuring what's really beyond the pale, what's really an unacceptable redistricting. There's this one thing that I asked all my guests. Is there some sort of algorithmic way that we can solve gerrymandering? Could we just put a computer on district drawing duty and be done with all this? Well, they said no. To go a bit deeper, here's what David Austin told me. If you come up with an algorithm, with a little bit of work, you can usually come up with population distributions 
that would break that algorithm or lead lead to uh, to districting that just doesn't seem fair. This again comes back to us not really having a perfect objective measure to work with. We've seen that compactness alone, convexity alone, and even combinations of the two not quite cut it. And even when I decided to take this idea of the will of the people not being a single outcome, but a distribution of outcomes, very, very literally, there was still a problem that I probably should have thought of. So now I, I know that this is in no way what your research is, but this just popped into my head. So I'm going to suggest this oh, that as a possible, dangerous. possible political <laughs> fix here. Do you have any uh, feeling that maybe we should let people vote as they would vote and then do exactly what you did in order to decide yeah. the best way? I mean, that's that would that would work more in a parliamentary system, right? Yes. Where you're yeah, voting, where you're for, voting a party, for a party. Where you're really voting for a party. I think in our current system, that's not really tenable. <laughs> So what's the fix here? Personally, I don't know. I guess the nonpartisan committees that some states are now using to draw district lines are a good start. But to be fair, I'm not sure about them. I hope that some of the people that I talk to for this take a look into the districts that they've come up with soon, just so that we have a better idea. I don't like to say it, because I hate to admit this about any problem but it doesn't look like mathematics can solve gerrymandering for us. Not that it has no role to play. We still need to be able to identify these potential problem districts somehow. Gerrymandering, it's this super scary problem. It took us centuries to just get to the point where everyone finally had the right to vote. And now thanks to gerrymandering, all of those votes, they aren't even worth the same amount. And that, that's just not right. A point that Jonathan Mattingly made very strongly. Just making sure that each person gets to vote is not sufficient to safeguard the democracy. If you don't want to take a mathematician's word on this, I totally get it. This is politics, not mathematics. And I don't listen to politicians when they tell me their opinions on the Riemann hypothesis. So instead, let's hear some words from a politician. There's a really good quote um, in uh, Barack Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope. He says, these days, almost every congressional district is drawn by the ruling party with computer-driven precision to ensure that a clear majority of Democrats or Republicans reside within its borders. Indeed, it's not a stretch to say that most voters no longer choose their representatives. Instead, representatives choose their voters. And there's really nothing that I have to add to that. But before I let you go... As a matter of journalistic due diligence, I asked all of my guests if they thought that the mathematical study of gerrymandering was driven by partisan goals. They said that it wasn't. And in Christie's case, it turns out that I was not the first person to ask her. One commenter was saying, oh, why didn't you do this back when the Democrats were in control? My response to that was, is that I wasn't an undergrad back then. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm undergrad now. So. Actually, she's a graduate student now. And all you gerrymandered districts, well, you better beware. Because what that means is that she has even more mathematical tools with which to find you. And you better believe, I want her to find you all. Hello, this is Randy from Gaithersburg, Maryland. And that's all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I would like to thank Ronald Merritt, Della Dumbaugh, Keith Devlin, Jonathan Hodge, David Austin, Christy Vaughn, and Jonathan Matley for appearing on the show. If you'd like to know more about them, 
please go to REL Prime and check out the notes for this episode. I also would like to thank the musicians Lowercase M, Ryan Weiss, Logoflop, Gibson for the music that you've heard. You can find links for more music from them on RELprime.com. Relatively Prime is a production of Acme Science and Samuel Hansen with support from all of the wonderful backers on Kickstarter, like me. If you'd like to help support Relatively Prime, head over to the website and click on the support button. Trust me, Samuel will be very happy that you did. You can also head over to iTunes, leave a rating and a review. That's how the algorithm decides the ranking, and the higher Relatively Prime is ranked, the more people will see the show. If you have any feedback or just want to say hello to Samuel, you can send him an email to his personal email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license. Please feel free to remix Samuel's voice to say whatever you like, as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank you for listening, and have a math-erific week.